Well, the thoughts I want to share with you this morning began almost a full year ago in a conversation that I had with Ken Voggs, whom you heard a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the conversation went to a number of places, but it, it ended up at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and the parable that Jesus told there about uh, sower and some seed and some soil. And, and as, uh, as the parable progressed, um, the, soil, the seed fell on four soils, and it took root in three of the soils, but only in one of the soils did the seed reach the harvest. And, and I, I uh, went from that conversation, and I went uh, into my Bible, and I started to look at the parables that Jesus taught. And I went to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and there's a parable there about a vine and some branches. And in verse 2, we find a vine or a branch that is attached to the vine. It's growing on the vine. It is enjoying the nutrients of the vine. It has foliage, but no fruit. And the vine, we find, is cut off and burnt. Read a little bit further in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, where two guys build a house. And that house is built along a stream. I guess it seems as though they're neighbors. And both of these houses have doors and windows and roofs and, uh, and all, of the, all of the amenities that would be expected in a, in a nice home. And then one day, a, stream, or a storm comes by and one is left standing. Unbeknownst to the neighbor, the other neighbor had no foundation on his. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, Jesus calls the disciples and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And as Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men, then later on he says, The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a net that is pulled. Oh, yeah, we got that, right? Fishers of men. And it catches all kinds of fish. But when it's brought to shore, when that net is brought to shore, the fishermen put some fish here that are good and throw some fish over there that are no good. Well, are not all the fish caught in the net? good fish. Then I read further in Matthew chapter 25 of a shepherd with his sheep. And the shepherd is, is the sheep are grazing and there's some goats with this sheep. And it says the shepherd takes his sheep from the goats. Well, just a minute. Here's these goats, they're feeding with the sheep, they're a part of the flock, and they're enjoying 
the green pastures and still waters. They're enjoying the shepherd's protection. But it says that at some point, that shepherd is going to take those goats and he's going to put them on the left-hand side and they're going to be doomed for destruction. And maybe the most poignant one of all, the parable of the king who is going to have a wedding supper for his son. And the people that he invites first, they don't want to come. So he says to his servants, go out and get whoever you can. And they go out and they get people from the highways and the byways, and they bring them in, and the party has already started. The party has already started. And the king comes in and says to a guy, friend, calls him friend, where is your wedding garment? And the man is speechless. And the Bible says that he gets tossed out for no wedding garment. And I'm reading all of these parables. And then I come to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, as we continue there. And in verse 13 and 14, it says, Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be who go that way, because narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leads unto life and few there be that find it. And I read here that heaven is not a given. But as I read these parables, I find that that road that leads to destruction, the sign above it says heaven. It promises heaven. And yet... It's a bridge, as it were, unfinished at its furthest end. The writer of Proverbs said it this way in Proverbs chapter 14, that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is destruction. So it begs the question, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? How can we know? And the Apostle Paul, in his, both of his letters to the Corinthians, he says that an examination is in order. In 1 Corinthians, it's in chapter 11, where he's talking to the people there about celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion. And he says, you know, when you come to do this, examine yourselves that you don't do it unworthily. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Paul has just finished defending himself from the church at Corinth because he has called them out on their sin and the church at Corinth said, who made you the boss over us? And Paul defends himself and defends the gospel and defends the truth of the gospel. And then in chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, now... Examine yourselves. You've examined me, now examine yourselves. And I'd like to just for a moment camp out on that word examine. Uh, 
You know, it, it has a scholastic uh, feeling to it. We take our exams, right? Yeah, they still, still vibrate inside when I think of school exams. And, and we take our exam, but the exam is simply a way to know how far you've come. Where have you been? Where did you start? And what do you know? How far have you come? What have you learned? And then there's a second part of, of examining, and that is a judicial sense, a legal sense of examining. And, uh, and I, I used to like a TV program called Matlock. It was a program in which uh, um, Andy Griffith played the part of an elderly lawyer, and, and the premise of the program was, was that he would have to, have to prove one, one party innocent and then make sure that justice was to the deserving party or to the uh, culprits, as it were. And depending upon how devious the, the scoundrel was on the other end, it would determine the depth to which uh, Andy Griffith would have to resort to his tricks in order to find him out. And, uh, and there was some, he had some real scoundrels going on that program. And as, as I think of that, you know, um, now I'm, I'm talking for us, so I, I got my hand up here, but uh, you will never meet a more devious scoundrel than your own heart. It says in Jeremiah chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And, uh, and as, I, as I look into my heart sometimes, yeah, sometimes my, my heart is, 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 uh, is so black and is so devious that I don't even like myself. And you wonder, well, then, if you don't like yourself, how do you get along? Easy. I cut myself some slack. Ha! I'm not so bad. There's somebody worse than me. And, and our, our hearts do that to us, you know. And sometimes I have to look in a history book to go back far enough to find somebody worse than me. And I even got as far as Attila the Hun. But nevertheless, our hearts are deceitful. And we tend to cut ourselves slack so we can't even be trusted to examine our own hearts. And the psalmist knew that when he wrote Psalm 139. It's a wonderful psalm of being known by God, that your creator who formed you before the foundation of the earth knew you, and he knows all about you. You're rising and you're sitting, and there's no place you can go from his presence. And then he ends the psalm this way. He says, now, to the God who is all of this, he says, now, you search me. You search me and know my heart, because you know it better than anybody. And having searched his heart and having taken the examination, oh, what are we examining for? <laughs> what are we looking for? Well, 
The Apostle Paul carries on in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, examine yourself that you be in the faith. And therein lies the road. In the faith. Are you in the faith? And you might say, well, I'll tell you what. I bet you you haven't done more Christian service than I have. But are you in the faith? You may say, I've been in ministry for years. But are you in the faith? You might say, well, I go to church. Well, are you in the faith? And that's the question. You know, in... uh, in Luke chapter 13, uh, I don't know whether, whether Luke um, recorded the, the same passage from Matthew at a different time or whether Jesus used the same illustration of it at a different time. But in Luke chapter 13, we have this same illustration of the narrow gate, the narrow door. And it says this, I'll just find it here. In a moment. And it says this, Strive to enter in at the narrow gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I don't know where you are. Uh, So I don't know you, and I don't know where you're from. And then you shall begin to say, we have eaten and have drunk in your presence, and you have taught in our streets. Jesus, we've been in your presence. And it's somewhat reminiscent of a story a couple chapters earlier in Luke. In Luke chapter 8, we read the story of, um, of Jesus' busy teaching, and suddenly a guy comes up and taps him on the shoulder, and we happen to know this guy's name is Jairus, and he says, my little gal is really sick. Can you come and see her? And Jesus says, absolutely, pal. Lead the way. And so they head off down the street, and those narrow streets of those little Middle Eastern towns, and, uh, and, and as, they, as they go down the street, people look out their door and say, hey, what's going on? Jesus is going to heal this guy's daughter. We're going to see something cool. Want to come? Oh, yeah, I'm in. And so the crowds just keep following out into the narrow streets, and, and I've, um, I happen to spend a couple few hours on the streets of old Mombasa, and, uh, and it's just, they're only about 20 feet wide, and there's two-story whitewashed buildings on either side, and it's just like walking down a tunnel. And, and when you're lost, and you're trying to look like you know where you're going, and not burst out running, and uh, it's, it's no fun. But anyways, they're in one of those streets, and I can just imagine that, that it doesn't take all that many people to make a big crowd in that little street. And suddenly Jesus turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, ah, come on. Really? We're on this narrow street with all these people, 
and they're all touching you, and you want to know who, and suddenly a little lady puts up her hand and says, it was me. And Jesus says, I knew that. Come on up here. And the lady comes up and says that she just bursts out with everything and tells Jesus all. And Jesus says, how you feeling? She says, I'm healed. All I did was touch your garment, just the hem of it, just the very bottom. And I was healed. You know, all those people touched Jesus, but only one received healing. You know, in the book of Revelation chapter 3, there's a very precious verse. I just like it. And it's written to a church that is on the wrong path. They have taken that bridge, as it were, with the unfinished end. And that church has, they, they think they've got it all together. They're doing well. They think they are living in favor and, uh, and they're wealthy and they're healthy and all of that stuff. But Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. And that supping, that is a whole different thing than eating and drinking in your presence. Uh, and and it, it's kind of like this. Uh, uh, anybody here been to a fundraising banquet? Yeah. <laughs> and and, and it's, they, they're these, there's these big to-dos, and uh, you get a bunch of your friends together, and uh, friends that you have maybe something in common with or, or friends that are good at storytelling or whatever the case may be, and you come to the banquet and you sit down at your table with your friends and you got all this good food and, and especially, the, especially the buns with the sesame seeds on, on the top, you know, and, hey, can we have some of those, please? And, um, and then they, they bring the main course and the dessert and, and you get to chat with your friends about getting your boat ready for fishing and you get to chat with your friends about what your kids are doing and catch up on all the life that you've been missing just being busy. And, uh, and, and it's just a good time. And then, oh, oh, just a minute. Now it's time for the special speaker. Oh, it's Jesus. He's a special speaker. Oh, good. He's got good things to say. Always makes me feel good. Yeah, I hope he doesn't take too long. No, I got places to go, people to see, things to do. And... Jesus says, I want to sup with you. I want to come in. That's a whole different thing. That's, hey, good to see you. Yes, say, Jesus, thank, thanks for the sunshine. That sure is cool. And he says, no problem. Yeah, glad to do it. I do it for everybody. Yeah, and... Uh, and, and thanks for, thanks for the, the health and strength. Uh, just appreciate that. And, and, uh, and boy, you sure are something. And then Jesus says, oh, before we get going any, hard, any further on that, um, you know, you weren't very nice to that guy over there. Um, 
maybe before we carry on this conversation, maybe you should go say sorry. Oh, yeah, I probably should, shouldn't I? Yeah. He says, you know how I feel about unity. Yeah, I guess I should go say sorry. Oh, but it's so hard. Uh, I mentioned that, didn't I? Hard is the way. You knew that. Oh, yeah. Say, would, would, you go, would you go with me? Sure, let's finish our coffee and go straight over there. You see the difference between supping with someone and dining with someone. And all of those people were bumping into Jesus, touching him. But only one touched him with the need of healing. And so the question for us is, are we bumping into him or are we touching him for healing? Do we see our sin as just kind of a roadblock to living our best life now? Or do we see our sin as an affront to a holy God that is going to mean destruction for us? And are we at the banquet, so to speak? Are we eating and drinking with Jesus as the guest speaker and he says some cool things? Or are we supping with him? And I wonder if that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about back in 1 Corinthians when he was talking about communion. Are you communing with him? Or are you just getting together with your friends and, well, the service is going to go an extra 10 minutes today. And as we, as we examine ourselves in these things, and as the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, well, we find that something happens. Something really cool happens. The Holy Spirit, well, it, I guess it works kind of like this. The Father, in his love for us, sends his agent, the Holy Spirit, to take away all of the blinders so that we can see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, in seeing Jesus, something happens. When we fellowship with him, all of a sudden, you know what? We are made new. When we come to him for that healing from our sins that's going to kill us, in Christ, all things are become new. Now we're no longer goats. We're sheep. We're no longer bad fish. We're good fish. That one I still, I got to chew on that one some more. But, but you, you understand? You get it? Things are made new. And now with Jesus, revival is when we get the opportunity to tear down that house that we built and come to the chief cornerstone, as it says in the book of Peter, the cornerstone, the rock of foundation, and then rebuild on top of Jesus. 
And there's just no other way. Because Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am that door that you're looking for. And my hope and my prayer for each one of us here at Pine Ridge is that we are going to find and be headed for that door. That we are going to be a people that enjoys that fellowship, that we've opened the door to our hearts and we can know communion with Jesus, that we can be in the faith, that we've touched him, not just to bump him in the street, but to receive healing from our sins and to know that communion. We're going to sing a song in, uh, to close the service. And that song, uh, I, I trust and I pray that it's going to be your prayer. It's a song that we know. It's called In Christ Alone. He is my rock, my cornerstone. Without him, we're just going to go to pieces. Hate it when that happens, eh? And, and uh, well, oh, <laughs> Taylor knows because I did this last time too. Because <laughs> I forgot. Um, I forgot. Yes. When we come to Jesus, in Isaiah 61, I don't know how I, it just didn't seem to flow, it didn't seem to fit, but... In Isaiah chapter 61, remember that guy that didn't have the wedding garment? Well, it says that Jesus is our wedding garment. He has clothed us with the garment of salvation. He is our wedding garment. And then in Romans chapter 13, in Romans chapter 13, we have this. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lusts of the flesh or for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And having put on that garment, having put on, on the Lord Jesus Christ, um, I, I know for myself that um, when I get ready for a wedding, when I am finally all ready to go, there are certain things that I don't do anymore, like open the hood of my truck or ride my motorcycle. Or there are certain things I don't do because I got to stay clean. I, I got to be presentable when I get to this wedding. And in the same way, we want to keep ourselves from sin, don't we? Wearing that garment ready for the second coming of Jesus, ready for when the supper is, it will be clean. But, but, should you happen to get your wedding garment dirty? Should you happen to do something dumb? Even maybe something that you knew you shouldn't have done because you knew it was going to get your wedding garment dirty? When we confess that sin, when we confess it, he is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us again from all our unrighteousness.
We have a wonderful Savior. And we have a wonderful hope awaiting for us in heaven. Please don't miss it. There's no need to miss it. You can be in the faith this morning.